Open with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James 2, beginning in verse 1. James 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, a, a reading and preaching and teaching a book, each book of the Bible uh, presents a unique challenge in every case. So the challenge of the books of Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation is interpreting intricate apocalyptic imagery. Uh, in the Gospels, you have sort of a different difficulty. There, there are deep ethical challenges presented to us, calling us to a discipleship that goes all the way down to the heart and the will. You, know, you want to read and teach Leviticus, that presents the challenge of keeping people awake, convincing them that this might actually matter to us in some way in 21st century. You know what the challenge of teaching James is? The challenge of teaching James is coherence. Finding the big ideas that tie this book together as a logical whole. That's the difficult part of teaching James. James is often described as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And, and I think what people mean by that is that James, like Proverbs, seems to be sort of just a random collection of wise advice. And so you see in chapter 1, James is talking about dealing with trials in chapter 2. There's partiality in chapter 3, there's the tongue, and it just sort of goes on from there. But I've come to the conclusion this is really not a good description of James. Um, I'm planting my flag in this as the theme for the book of James. The theme of the book of James is how to be whole. How to be whole. James's goal, in his uh, opening words, James 1 and verse 4, his goal is to create Christians who are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word there, perfect, complete or whole, is repeated seven times in the letter and is, I think, the string that holds everything else together. James wants to make Christians who always live consistently with their professions. He wants to make Christians whose beliefs and actions always match up, who always do what they say they believe. He wants to make Christians who don't have any part of their lives they keep God out of, who aren't hypocrites with glaring shortcomings in their character, who wholeheartedly and single-mindedly serve God in every part of their life and in every crevice of their heart. He wants us to grow into mature Christian adults. He wants our discipleship to be whole and not part. And I think James 2 fits this theme like a glove. There is a sin James's readers were guilty of, which meant that their discipleship was not whole but partial, and funnily enough, the sin that indicates that their discipleship was only partial was the sin of partiality. And what James says here is that the sin of partiality is not just a social faux pas. It didn't just some, wasn't just some hurt feelings. This sin undermines their entire profession of faith. That our failure of this part of God's law makes us guilty of the whole thing, in verse 10 he'll say. So this morning I want us to ask, what is the sin of partiality? Why is it so wrong? And how can we be whole and not partial in our discipleship? So what we're going to do is, in the first part of our lesson, 
We're going to talk through the text and just see how James lays out his case. And the second part, we'll try to bring it off the page and into our lives. So, it begins in verse 1 with his thesis statement, the main point. Everything that follows is an illustration of the sin of partiality or an explanation of exactly why the sin of partiality is a sin, why it's so simple. So, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, the literal expression James uses here is translated partiality in my, in my translation, but there is a, an expression literally translated which says, receive the face. So he literally says, my brothers, do not receive the face. It's an idiom that they would have understood, which means to make definitive judgments about people based on their external appearance. So you sort of take in their face. You look at the outside of them, you size them up. That's what it is to receive the face. So we take in their appearance, we see what they're wearing, and we think that we know, we, we know everything we need to know about that person. And then we begin to treat them according to that superficial evaluation. I've got you. I took you in. I see what you look like. I know everything I need to know about you. Job done. Now I just treat you according to that evaluation. The simple message of verse 1 is this. Holding to the faith of Jesus should never involve receiving the face. Show no partiality. And to anyone with a passing knowledge of the God of the Bible, nothing about this is revolutionary. Deuteronomy 10.17 says outright, God is not partial. Leviticus 19.15 says, Israel should emulate God's impartiality in their courtrooms. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. What about the famous statement God makes in 1 Samuel 16? Samuel had received the face of Jesse's sons. He had sized up Eliab, Jesse's oldest, and said, this guy looks like king material. He, he received his face. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man receives the face, but the Lord looks on the heart. So partiality does not have a good track record in the Bible. And doing the exact opposite thing God does doesn't seem like the path to spiritual wholeness. Call me crazy, it doesn't seem like a great idea to do the exact opposite thing that God says he's doing. So that's the main point. That's the thing everything else is going to relate to. Now, in verse 2, James takes this out of the abstract and he gives us a concrete example of partiality. This is what James's readers were doing wrong. This is verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, will you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the setting here seems to be something like the weekly assembly, where before worship has begun, people are finding places to sit. I think this translates pretty well to our day. The, the characters in the story are, are only known by what they're wearing, the first two at least. And so you've got the rich man who comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. Now the gold ring, that, that's a symbol of wealth in every culture. That's not hard to translate. Although I'm told gold rings were specifically status symbols for members of what was called the equestrian class in Rome. Basically the horse riding class. So most everyone in that day and time had to walk to get where they were going. 
And if you did own an animal, it was because your livelihood depended on that animal. It was not a luxury item. So you owned a donkey or an ox because you had to work your fields. Or you owned a herd of cattle because your livelihood depended on those animals. But to have a horse simply to ride is a pure luxury. It'd be the equivalent in that day and time of sort of like a private jet. And the gold ring was a symbol, a status symbol to everyone that you had one. That you were a member of that class of people. On the other hand, the other character that walks in is the poor man who is simply said to be wearing shabby clothing. Now, that word shabby is a, is a pretty graphic word. It's the same word that's used in James 1.21, which is there translated filth or filthiness. So the word might not just describe how he looks, it might also describe how he smells. Imagine mismatched, stained, smelly, hole-filled rags. Well, there there could also be sort of a third group of characters, I think, in verse 3, and those would be the church members, the church members, who fall over themselves to honor and impress the rich man. They offer him a place of comfort, a place of prominence. And meanwhile, the poor man is treated as an embarrassment and an inconvenience. He's made to stand apart from everyone else or or to sit on the floor. Now, the King James Version has has a vivid picture. I'm not sure if James was really trying to say this or not, I kind of wish he, that, that he is. But the King James Version, they have him saying this. They have the church member saying to the poor man, sit here, not at my footstool or on my footstool, but rather under my footstool. So the footstool, I imagine, it's just, you know, it's about a foot high. You go and crawl under that thing. Crawl into this cubby hole and go away. James characterizes what's happened in this scenario by asking two questions whose answer is obvious in verse 4. Have you, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, question one, and question two, and become ju- judges with evil thoughts? They act as evil and perverse judges. First of all, they take upon themselves the job of declaring who is worthy to sit before God in worship and who is not. And that's bad enough to think that, that we can make that determination, who is worthy to stand before God and who is not. But he says it gets even worse than that. You make these judgments based on the most superficial of standards. Now, as James describes the problem, that one picture I get in my mind as I read this, I think about the statue you sometimes see outside of a courthouse of Lady Justice, who has the scales of justice in her hand. What's always on Lady Justice's face? A blindfold. She's wearing a blindfold. She doesn't size up how expensive the outfits are before she renders her verdict. Justice is blind. But it seems here that the ushers in this church seem to have glasses on with built-in barcode scanners so they can read the price tags of their visitors' clothing. James says there's a perverse calculation going on here where partiality is shown toward those they stand to profit from the most, toward those who would enhance their status, and those who seem to be of no benefit to the church were treated like trash. Have you not become judges with evil motives? Now, Verse 5, James begins to explain why exactly this is wrong. And I think the thing to appreciate about the rest of the section here is the length James goes to in order to expose the wrongness of partiality. This is not simply a mistake. This is not a, a faux pas. James gives three reasons why partiality makes no sense in light of basic Christian professions. And the first reason this is wrong in verse 5, is this. It's wrong because you are 
dishonoring the God honor. That's the first reason it's wrong, because you dishonor the God honor. This is verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. If you read the Gospels, it doesn't take long to notice the kinds of people who are most eager to follow Jesus. The very first people who follow him become his apostles. A lot of them are blue-collar fishermen. And then he begins traveling around preaching, and who, is, who are the people who heal, who he heals and who are grateful? Who are the people who flock to hear him and ask him questions, not wanting to know the answer? Well, it's people like widows, and it's lepers, and it's prostitutes, and it's tax collectors, and it's children. What do they all have in common, with the possible exception of the tax collectors? What do they all have in common? They don't wear gold rings. That's what they have in common. The general rule in the Gospels is that the people who are most aware of their desperate need for earthly goods are also most aware of their desperate need for heavenly goods. As Jesus said in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What James does in verse 5 is simply point out this demographic fact that the poor of the world had disproportionately become the rich in faith. That the inheritors of no earthly estate had become heirs of the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, the poor man you showed contempt to may well be a walking fulfillment of Jesus' promise that he will exalt the humble. God has honored plenty of people who look like the guy in verse 2, who look like the shabbily dressed man in verse 2. God has honored plenty of people who look like that. Jesus never kicked people out of his audiences because they had a hole in their tunic. Paul never refused to baptize someone because they didn't have any jewelry on. If anything, James says, God delights in showering his grace on the discarded of the world. And so James says, can you not see how out of step with God's heart you are, with God's priorities you are? So reason number one why it's wrong, why it's ridiculous, is that you are dishonoring people God wants to honor. Reason number two why it's wrong, verse 6, is this, you honor the blasphemer. So you dishonor the wrong person, and at the same time, in verse 6, you you honor the wrong person. He asks in verses 6 and 7, three parallel questions whose answer should be obvious. Question number one in verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? We begin to get an insight here into the lives of James' readers. I want you to notice, James' question in verse 6 assumes they themselves... The ones being partial against the poor man, that they, them, they themselves are poor. So do you see, he says, they are those who oppress you. The rich are the ones who are oppressing you. The you there is James's readers, and the you there are poorer people being oppressed by richer people. So maybe their poverty isn't as extreme as the shabby man at verse 2, but they don't want people worse dressed than them coming into church. Now, it raises the question, what is this about? The the rich are the ones who oppress you. How does that work? I think the last question of verse 6 might shed light on that. The next question is, are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? So here is a plausible scenario that I think makes perfect sense of what we know about the first century Middle Eastern economy, and I think makes sense of the text here. So just imagine this. After a bad harvest, a poor farmer doesn't have enough to make ends meet. 
he's basically about to have to beg on the street. He's got nothing. He doesn't have enough to make preparations for, the, for, the, uh, for sowing the next year. He's just desperate. And so the only thing he knows to do is to go seek a loan, which was a difficult proposition that day and time. But he finds a rich lender, and the rich lender perhaps recognizes this desperation. And he loans him the money at an exorbitant interest rate. Well, if the harvest the following year is not a bumper crop, then he can't pay the loan. And if the, the terms of the loan were, were, were exorbitant, then that means the interest he might owe is much more than the principal. So he might have taken out a 10,000 shekel loan, but now he suddenly owes 25,000 shekels to the lender. In which case, the lender will drag him into court, as James describes, to extract every last shekel from him, to liquidate all of his assets, and to take them for himself and may get him thrown into debtor's prison. That was a story James's readers knew perfectly well. It happened all the time in the first century. It may have even happened to some of them or some of their loved ones. Are not the rich ones, the rich the ones who drag you into court? And then verse 7, he asks this question. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So here is sort of the other side to verse 5's coin. For every fisherman, for every beggar, for every leper who follows Jesus, in the Gospels there is also an aristocratic Sadducee, a rich young ruler or a Sanhedrin member who either turns away from Jesus or actively opposes Jesus. So the types of people they're coveting the favor of are those who most often blaspheme the Lord and oppress his people. They've gotten it exactly wrong. They have dishonored the God-honored and then they have honored the blasphemer, honored the dishonorable. Now, one, one thing to say here, one, one way I think to misapply the passage would be to use it to be partial in the other direction, to sort of show the face to another group of people. So the teaching here is not to be partial suddenly against the rich man. The teaching is to be as impartial as God is toward all people. And I think the warning here has to be uh, uh, about being partial toward the rich man. The warning is in that direction because that's the direction the temptation to be partial always happens. You want to ingratiate yourself to the guy who can do something for you. You want to ingratiate yourself to the guy whose friendship will enhance your status. The shabby man of verse 2 has none of that to offer, so the temptation to be partial to him is not that strong. And so reason number two, he says, why partiality is wrong is that you honor the blasphemer. Which brings us to reason number three why this is wrong, why partiality is wrong. And the reason number three is you have profoundly transgressed God's law. You have profoundly transgressed God's law. And James really goes deepest now into his third reason, explaining that partiality doesn't just offend. It cuts against the grain of Jesus' way of life. This is verse 8. Verses 8 and 9 to get started. He says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture." And here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James adds, you're doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what he does in verse 8 is he quotes something Jesus says in Matthew 22 and verse 39, which itself is a quote of, of Leviticus 19. He quotes something Jesus said where he says that love of neighbor is fundamental to the whole law of God. So you remember the great commandment in the law, Jesus is asked, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God with your whole self. 
And the second command is like it, he says, and that is that we love our neighbor with ourselves. So the first great command is to love God with your whole self. The second command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you keep reading in the Gospels, Jesus makes sure we understand we cannot define neighbor so narrowly that we're permitted to treat anyone without love. The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that there are no non-neighbors. Jesus even says the love we show to others should even extend to our enemies in Matthew 5 and verse 44. So the positive command that Jesus' people are supposed to be embracing as fundamental to our way of life is embracing this royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what exactly have James's partial readers done? They haven't just broken one of God's little no-nos. They didn't commit a whoops-a-daisy. They have failed as spectacularly as possible to embody a fundamental ethic in God's law. They have profoundly misunderstood the very heart of God. They have failed to embody the values and virtues which make us most like God. Now, James has already warned uh, his readers about being hearers only without doing in James 1.22, and he'll hit on that again in the second half of chapter 2. He's warned them about being hearers only without doing. What he's sort of saying here is, you've done something far worse than that. I sort of wish you only heard but didn't do now. Because what they've done is become doers of the exact opposite of what they heard. They heard, love your neighbor as yourself, and they didn't just not do that. They did the exact opposite of that. They hated their neighbors. So in verse 9... He's made a serious accusation. You are convicted by the law as transgressors. And maybe, maybe we want to say to that, you know, it's a little bit much. I mean, yeah, it's, it wasn't nice what we did to that guy. We made him sit on the floor and we apologize for it. James says, no, it's much worse than that. Partiality cuts against a fundamental law close to God's heart. And in verse 10, he says, I'll remind you to violate a law of God is to violate the law of God. This is verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you'll become a transgressor of the law. So what James reminds us here of is the indivisibility of God's law. That's what he reminds us of, the indivisibility of God's law. It has never been the case that God's law is a buffet where you can take what you like and leave off what you don't. To despise any one of God's laws is to despise God's law. To fail to submit to one of God's laws is to fail to submit to God, full stop. And so his example in verse 11 is, you know, the murderer doesn't get off lighter because he doesn't commit adultery. The judge doesn't say, you know what, lighter sentence for you because you didn't break all these other laws. That's not the point. You've broken this law. You're a lawbreaker. You're either standing inside the will of God or outside, and one sin will put you on the outside as well as any other. I really like what one man said about this, describing the indivisibility of God's law. He said, the law is like a sheet of glass. If it's broken, it's broken. It's no good saying it's only a little broken. A sheet of glass can no more be partly broken than a car tire can only be partly flat. If it's flat, it's flat. And he goes on to say, James sees that some people were trying to drive on the flat tire of social prestige rather than the full tire 
of loving one's neighbor as oneself. And when we come to verse 12, James really nails down the stakes for his readers. When partiality finds its way into the church, profound sin has found its way into the church. And when sin finds its way into the church, we're going to have to answer for that sin in judgment. That's verse 12. So speak, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's really bad news and good news here. The bad news is that we will be judged by how we speak and act, by the standard of God's law, and that includes the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the bad news is that those who have exercised superficial judgment without mercy invite the same judgment without mercy on themselves that they themselves have been giving to other people. Verse 13 can sort of be read as a mirror image of a beatitude. So do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? James sort of says this, Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not receive mercy. That's the situation James's readers are nearing. Their partiality is the exact opposite of mercy, and unmerciful people get no mercy in judgment. The amount of mercy we give signifies to God the amount of mercy we'd like to receive from Him. The contempt we show for the shabbily dressed man invites the contempt of God before whom we're all shabby. The favor we seek from blasphemers subtracts from the favor we receive from God. That's what James is saying in verse 13. That's the bad news. But James doesn't end with a threat. He says, if we will embody the love and mercy we've received from God toward our neighbor, including the ones without nice clothes, if we embody the love and grace we've received from God toward our neighbor, we in turn invite the mercy of God on ourselves. And so he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And while we're at it, I think we'd be well served to remember that when all of us stand before God in judgment, we all stand before him shabby. We all stand before him poor and needy. Remember that about yourself and everyone you've ever met. We are all spiritual indigents. And if I really remembered that, then being partial toward one spiritual indigent over another spiritual indigent will look as ridiculous to us as it does to God. Show no partiality, James says. So with the, logic, the logical flow of James's text here before us, let's end with a few points for home. What does this look for us today? What does this mean for us? What do we learn from this passage? Number one, I think we learn, number one, that the two great commandments are a package deal. Two great commandments are a package deal. There's a common temptation among religious people, and that is to think and act like religious piety only ever involves me and God. To think that as long as I offer the sacrifices, as long as I check the worship boxes, as long as I've said my prayers, me and God, were squared away. We can define religion in an exclusively vertical way. So religion is about my relationship with God. And my relationships with other people, that's sort of a separate issue. Maybe God wants me to be, be a good guy in those areas, but, but really, religion's about me and God. There are passages about this, a lot of them. In Isaiah 1, the, the prophet excoriates Israel, who is scrupulously making the sacrifices, keeping the feast days, saying their prayers, doing all the vertical things. And then they went out and they oppressed their workers and they corrupted justice and they did evil to their fellow man. You know what Isaiah says about that? 
He says the worship to God does not cover up the evil to man. Actually, the evil to man taints the worship to God. And God says, you know, I'm getting about fed up with you trampling my courts, with your sacrifices, if this is how you're living, if this is how you're treating other people. One of the most unique aspects of Judaism and then Christianity, the Old Testament and the New Testament, unique among the, the world religions, was that religion involved love of neighbor as much as love of God. And that if one did not love his neighbor, it was a sure sign he did not really love God. The pagan did not think this way. Baal and Canaan or Zeus and Greece, they didn't care how you treated other people, really. As long as they got their sacrifice, you could kind of do what you wanted. But the God of the Bible always ties together love of God with love of neighbor. So the Ten Commandments, these are sort of a summary, a syllabus for the entire rest of the Law of Moses, sort of the Law of Moses in capsule form. You realize six of the Ten Commandments regulate Israel's relationship with their fellow man. The first four are how they relate to God. The last six, 60% of them, are about how Israel relates to their fellow man. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but in the next breath he marries it together with the next, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jesus even advises us at one point, if it occurs to us in the midst of worship that our brother has something against us, that we should leave our gift at the altar... And go to our brother. He says this, Matthew 5.24. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, thinking we could worship God well while not treating our brother well is ridiculous. Go make that right and then your worship will be holy. James says most memorably, uh, sorry, John, in 1 John, that we shouldn't do evil to our neighbor and then expect God to do good for us. That anyone who says they love God while hating the people made in the image of God right in front of them don't actually love God like they said. As, James said, as John says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4.21 So what I'm trying to say is in, in both testaments, the two commandments are a package deal. If you're not doing one, loving your neighbor, it's a sure sign you're not really doing the other, loving God. And to try to separate one from the other, to try to define religion in an exclusively vertical way is to make a mockery of God's law. That's what James is trying to show his readers. Real religion involves more than just appeasing God, checking the worship boxes, getting God off our back. Real religion involves much more than that. He's just said this in James 1.27. Here's James' definition of religion, one aspect of it. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's an interesting definition of real religion, isn't it? James is called to love our neighbor in in chapter 2 and verse 8. He calls the royal law, meaning it's of supreme importance. It's close to God's heart. The point is the two great commandments are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. Number two, we learn in this text that partiality isn't just wrong. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-gospel. Do you remember the story told in Galatians 2 about Peter playing the hypocrite? So the story goes, Peter arrived in Antioch, where apparently there were a number of Gentile Christians. And for a time, he happily shared meals with those Gentile Christians, as well he should. You remember, it, it was 
God who had shown Peter, this same Peter, this great vision about clean and unclean things. The first application was food, but the second application was people. And he'd been told, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so Peter knew this lesson about God making things clean. But Paul says that that when some Jewish brethren showed up one day in Antioch, who might have had some of those old prejudices against eating with Gentiles, Peter suddenly changed his tune. And he began to shun his Gentile brethren. He started acting, acting partially. He started receiving the face. What I find interesting is what Paul says is really wrong about Peter's actions. It wasn't just that he snubbed some of his brethren. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't just that he acted preferentially toward other brethren. That wasn't the issue. This wasn't just hurt feelings. Here's what went fundamentally wrong according to Paul. This is Galatians 2.14. This is what Paul says. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. Now what does that mean? The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. God became a man, born of a woman, inaugurated the kingdom of God, taught by word and example how to faithfully bear the image of God. He suffered and died for our sins, raised in victory over death, ascended to heaven where he now reigns. Those are the facts of the gospel. The next question is, who did he do all that for? Paul answers the question in the next chapter of Galatians. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, and then he gives a list of the types of people who can receive the gospel. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so part of what makes the gospel such good news is that the work of Jesus is for everyone. And everyone who accepts his gift is made a part of the family of God on equal terms. For Peter to turn his back on a certain set of brethren is not just to hurt the feelings of those brethren. It's to fall out of step with the fundamental project of the gospel. Peter's partiality wasn't just wrong. It was anti-gospel. It was anti-Christ. It was against the whole project of God. And so to return to James, when we fall over ourselves to impress someone we think would be a great asset to the church, whatever we mean by that, and when we put forth no effort to help someone we perceive to be a liability or an embarrassment to the church, we pervert the gospel to an extent that it is now unrecognizable. And so this can happen in James's example where we give greater deference to the rich over the poor. It can happen when we try to appeal to the young to the neglect of the older or vice versa. It can happen when we excitedly welcome someone with lots of brotherhood connections and we shrug at the person who has none. As James says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. It really is that serious. It's not just wrong. It's profound wrong. It's anti-Christ. Which brings us to number three. Third and finally, partial faithfulness is unfaithfulness. So I want to draw your attention to a question we sort of sped past earlier, which I think might have an extra layer of meaning. The question is in verse 4, where James asks, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? 
So on the surface, it describes the situation outwardly, making superficial distinctions between or among these two men. And that's where the partiality plays itself out. You've made distinctions among these men. But commentators say that James may be laying something else down at the same time, and it's well captured in the King James Version, where the question is put this way. Not, you've made distinctions among yourselves, but rather, are you not then partial in yourselves? Which is an interesting word. Are you not then partial, not among yourselves, but rather within yourselves? And if James is getting at that sort of double meaning, not just the partiality up here, but out here, but the partiality in here, what he's saying is this. Their inconsistent treatment of other people is really a sign of an inconsistent character within themselves. They were partial on the inside before they were partial on the outside. That outward partiality is a sign of an inward lack of wholeness, an inward lack of maturity and completeness. As one man put it, consistently Christian conduct only comes from a consistently Christian heart and mind. It's a sign of an inconsistent Christian heart and mind is partiality. So not only is the partiality that shows favoritism, is not only is that a sin which makes us guilty of the whole law, verse 10, it also reveals that some part of our own hearts remains untouched by the gospel. James says it shows that we have yet to become whole. It shows that we are still yet to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It shows that we are still yet double-minded, unstable in all our ways, as he says in James 1 and verse 8. James says if we want to be whole disciples, we must never be partial in every sense of that word. And if we are partial towards or against anyone, it is a sure sign that part of our heart is yet to be gripped by the logic of the gospel, which is for all people without qualification. And so maybe there's someone here this morning that realizes that part of your heart has not been taken hold of by Jesus, that part of your heart still sees things the world's ways. And if that's your case, then we invite you to come and repent to make your life right with God. If you need to come give your life over to God in the first place, to be baptized into Christ. Everyone is welcome. They will come to God when He calls. Come now as we stand and sing. All things are ready. Come, change the peace. Come for the table now is spread. Ye famishing, ye weary, come, and thou shalt be richly Praise God for full salvation.